Hey team, just a quick note before we get started, this episode is brought to you by Matrixport and Coinbase Prime. Big thanks to them for making the show possible. You'll hear more about them later. Now on with the show. To me, it's like it's the early 90s and looking at the internet. It is going to happen whether we want it to or not. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. Welcome, Jim. Hey, thanks for having me. Big fan of the podcast. I've been super excited to chat with you because, again, uh, you know, I feel like you really can kind of tackle both sides of what's going on right now. You've got great insights when it comes to markets and kind of the macro world, uh, but you've also kind of made this transition into DeFi, and to me, they're very related. So I want to kind of cover both sides uh, of that coin in our interview today. Um, I want to start actually uh, focusing on a chart that you tweeted out. We covered in our roundup last week as well. It's a chart basically covering the percentage of uh, U.S. corporate debt that is in um, that has negative real rates attached to it right now. And it's this, uh, we'll, we'll post a chart, but it's this squiggly little chart, you know, around like 5% or something like that. Uh, and this year it's jumped up to like 85%, you know, as the vast majority of the high yield market is in negative real yields. What is the implication? Why do you tweet this chart out? Why do you think it's important to follow? Yeah, it's, uh, it's the ultimate hockey stick chart is what it is. What it, is. it basically says that 85% of the high yield universe, the yield on high yield bonds, is yielding less than the current inflation rate, which is around 5.2%. The average inflation, uh, the average yield in the high yield space, high yield is somewhere around three uh, as well too. And so what it means is that if you, now we've even gone as far down the rabbit hole that if you own high yield securities, that the yield, that the income that they throw off won't even cover the inflation rate. Now, to be fair about this, uh, the, infl- the inflation rate is probably somewhat elevated because of the reopening of the economy. Remember, it's a year-over-year measure, the inflation rate. So we're measuring it against last summer when we were in the middle of the lockdowns. Prices fell when we were in the middle of the lockdowns. And so you've got that, you know, what they call, the economists call the base effect. That inflation mm-hmm. rate should come down over the next several months. The question is by how much. I think it's only going to come down to around, you know, the 3% level. But it underscores, the chart underscores this idea that there's very little value in the bond market. That anybody who's buying bonds is uh, not buying them because they're cheap, because they're not. They might buy them because they believe in flows. They believe that the Fed will support the market. Or maybe they buy sovereign yields, you know, treasuries, because they think that things are going to get um, difficult and that's a flight to safety type of trade. But you don't look at high yield bonds or corporate bonds or treasuries and go, wow, that's cheap. I think I should invest my money in there. Anything but that right now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you posted something great uh, on your Twitter this morning. We're recording this on September 16th. Um, where you kind of broke out uh, in CPI kind of the reopening uh, part, you know, the part of uh, the CPI that should kind of flare on a reopening and then more p- kind of permanent or lasting changes in inflation. Uh, and based on the chart and kind of the Twitter thread that you put out, it actually looks like some of the more the more permanent parts of CPI look elevated. So even though we do have that base effect that is kind of juicing uh, the CPI print right now, based on what I saw you put out, it actually looks like thing, the, the inflation might be more permanent or longer lasting uh, than we had initially thought. What's your kind of thought here on how much is this a transitory spike? How much are we in this for the long haul here? Like, what should we be expecting? Yeah, so let's let's frame the debate for those that are not fully into this right now. The inflation rate, as I just mentioned, is up. The Federal Reserve and the majority of Wall Street uh, uh, fund managers think that that is transitory. That is because there's been a spike in airline tickets, restaurants, hotels, rental cars, in total, about 14% of what makes up the CPI index, those prices have spiked up with the reopening of the economy, and they've probably peaked in their rate of change and they're coming down. Um, and so their their argument is, nah, this inflation rate is just all of those transitory items associated with the reopening. Okay. Mm-hmm. Split it up into what I thought was transitory items and what I thought was non transitory or the opposite of transitory is persistent as persistent items. And what we found was, you're right, the transitory items are falling. They're very volatile. 
Airline tickets, for instance, fell 9% annualized rate in August alone. That's a huge move for airline tickets to do in one month. But if you look at the persistent or the non-transitory, they made a new multi-year high. Those things like shelter and home prices and rents and medical and everything else that's not associated with the economy reopening, those prices are starting to move up and continue to move up. But you get these wild spring swings in restaurants and airline tickets and rental cars, and it kind of masks it. That's why I said, I think the 5% year-over-year rate is high and it will come down. Uh, so I agree with the transitory crowd, but the transitory crowd thinks it's going to come back to two or one and a half. I think it might stall at three and a half to three. And that will be problematic for the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve thinks it's transitory. It's going to go way down. It's going to allow them to stay uber accommodative for the next couple of years that they could taper their bond purchases. They buy $120 billion of bonds a month. Well, they want to make an announcement that they're going to go to 110 one month, 100 the next month, 90 the next month, and then wait another year to raise rates. Well, if inflation is transitory like they think, and this is just a boomlet that will dissipate, then they could probably get away with that. But if inflation stays sticky high, then they're going to have a problem because the market might change its opinion. That's a fancy way of saying interest rates are going to go up because no one's going to want to own bonds if they think that, I am stuck with a 130 10-year note yield, and this inflation rate's going to stay at 3%. My purchasing power is eroded every second I own those bonds. Why do they own them 130s now? Because they think that that inflation rate's going to come down near 130 in, in uh, fairly soon. But if it doesn't, then they, they might start selling them. Rates will start up, and the market narrative will be, Jay Paul, you got to do something about this. And that's code word for... Stop with all the easy money. I don't know. If you're listening to this podcast, you are aware of the uh, intense debate around inflation. And there almost is like this emotional component to it, right? And I mentioned uh, I'm a big fan of Macro Voice. I've been listening to Eric for years. I've heard you on Eric for years. Um, And on shows like that, I almost feel like folks want inflation because they want there to be consequences for central banking, right? They want there to be another side of the coin, another shoe to drop. Actions have consequences, and this easy money printing can't go on forever. So folks want to understand, how is it going to disappear? And I think in many people's minds, this topic of inflation comes up. Well, one exercise that might be interesting for folks to do, this is something that I've done because I'm a huge nerd and I love doing stuff like this, is I went back and listened to podcast episodes uh, during March and April of 2020. Um, And I listened to what people were saying back then and the arguments that people were making. And um, I got to tell you, most people were flat out wrong. And the Federal Reserve, uh, for all the flack that they were getting at the time, they ended up kind of being directionally right about a whole lot of stuff. Um, And, you know, I don't usually end up defending the Fed a lot on this podcast, but I kind of think they did the right thing in this instance. Uh, And, you know, folks are kind of saying back then there's some limit to what we can do. It doesn't really feel like there is a limit right now, or, or certainly the limit is much larger than a lot of us thought. So, What's your framework for all this, Jim? Do you think at the end of the day, it is going to be inflation that tamps down on the Federal Reserve activities? Is there some number where it's like, okay, $1 trillion is okay, but $100 trillion is just too much, and we're all going to wake up from the concentric hallucination? What is the catalyst that stops the current cycle of easy money printing? A couple of things. First of all, you're right that history shows that you know whether it was after 9-11, which we just had the anniversary of, or the 08 crisis, or even the pandemic— Um, and some other minor instances in between, like in 98, when long-term capital failed, in large part, the Fed does the right thing initially. The problem Mm -hmm. is they do that thing too long. As we used to say after 9-11, that they're holding the rate back then, it was 1% on the funds rate, through 2004, And so we said, you know, they're holding the rate at an emergency rate when it's clear there's no more emergency. They're continuing to buy bonds today as if we're in the death throes of last summer's lockdown, which we clearly are not. So usually what the Fed does is they do the right thing. Yeah, you did the right thing. 
And then they just keep doing it way too long. And that's, you know, they don't know when to, you know, you've entertained me on the stage there, Jay. Okay, now it's getting kind of old. You can leave the stage. Now I'm going to stay here for another hour and a half and keep entertaining you is what I'm going to do. Yeah. That's, the, that's what their, their problem has usually been. So, yeah, I agree with you about what they did in March and April of 2020. They stepped in when the financial markets were were completely chaotic and falling apart. And they did the right thing. And... They haven't stopped is what the problem is. Yeah. Now, to your other point, um, you're right. There is a big debate right now, and it might fall down on political lines, too. Uh, is there going to be a consequence to all this money printing? Uh, is there going to be a consequence to all of the stimulus? Look, if you look at some of the statistics, something like uh, uh, at the peak in this past spring, a third of all of the income Americans got came from the government. It came from yeah. stimulus checks, Social Security, disability, everything else. We were, you know, mailing people money is what we were doing. And it got up to one third of all of the income in the United States at its peak when the $1,400 checks went out with the American Recovery Act back in April and in March. Let's just say that the, uh, the inflation rate is truly transitory and it truly dissipates and goes back down to 2%. Well, then we can mail everybody a third of their income forever, because if there isn't a consequence, modern monetary theory is what we're talking about. Universal basic right. income becomes the order of the day. Uh, and mm -hmm. that is going to be the natural the natural outcome to all of this. And that's where it kind of falls down on political lines as well, too. One last thought for you. Um, when you talk about a theory about inflation, uh, the best Federal Reserve governors to listen to are the ones that just leave. Because once they left, they tell you what they think. So in 2017, Dan Torillo left the Federal Reserve. He was a Fed governor through 2008, through the financial crisis. He went to the Brookings Institute and he gave a speech. The Fed has no working theory on inflation. He was 100% right. And what he meant was, it wasn't a knock on the Fed, as much as it was, you could take every theory about what causes inflation, whether it's money velocity, rational expectations, anchoring, uh, you know, the Fed's favorite one as well, too, um, supply chain, whatever. Take whatever theory you have and go ahead and test it via history. The correlations all come to zero is basically what he was trying to say. We don't know what causes inflation. We don't know what causes it to go up. We don't know what causes it to go down. The problem is the Fed wants you to believe that they do know exactly to the third decimal place what causes it. And they've got this little knob and, and lever that they can push and pull and make inflation go wherever they want it to go right now. But they won't tell you that until, they're le until they left the you know, official to them and then they can actually speak what they think. Yeah. You know, that really just resonated with me right there. I, uh, you know, there's only one high profile, uh, you know, kind of economist, finance talking head person whose theory I've ever really liked about inflation. And it's just, we have no idea what causes it. Any guesses who, who that is? Uh, no, who is that? Who said that? That'd be Stephanie, Stephanie Kelton said Ste that. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. And look, I don't agree personally with MMT. But like, it was really refreshing to just hear, we just don't know what causes this thing. I have no idea. And that makes sense to me. If you look at periods in time of history, everything is retrofitting, right? Many of the explanations around inflation are retrofitted. And I got to be honest, I've read this, I've talked about this on this podcast before. If you read this book, Market Wizards, which is interviews of prolific investors, took place back in 1989, guys like Paul Tudor Jones, Bruce Kovner, and they are talking about the same things that we are talking about today, just with smaller numbers. Seriously, you could, you could take the exact same argument, you just divide the number by 10 or 20, and they're saying it, you know, the deficits of, you know, 20 billion a year, we're gonna, there's going to be hyperinflation in the US. That sounds hilarious now. Um, but, it, you know, we've been talking about this for a long period of time. I think that the modern monetary theory crowd has the right description. And let me explain, but maybe the prescription is a little bit different. What I mean by description is what they're saying is the government can spend, um, you know, through modern monetary theory. And if it were to cause inflation, the government has a tool that can suck money out of the system quickly and tamp down inflation, taxes. And so what their argument is, is that the interest rates should be kind of this 
steady number that maybe changes once a decade. And the tax rate should be much more cyclical. That when the economy is going well with low inflation, you could cut taxes. But when, the, when we, we pump too much stimulus into the economy and inflation comes up, you raise taxes to pull money out. Now, I said that's a good description. Practically, I just can't ever see our system of government allowing the tax rate to fluctuate like the Fed allows the uh, interest rates to fluctuate uh, as well, too, yeah. because it's such an emotionally charged system. So I get it. They're right about that. The other thing I, I, I quibble with them a little bit and, uh, is, is they're right if there is a because remember, the modern monetary theory gets a bad rap. They do believe you can stimulate too much to inflation. They just think that that level that it will trigger is way higher, that we could pump in a lot more stimulus before we get that inflation rate uh, as well. But they do think, it, you know, you can't overdo it. I just think mm -hmm. we're closer to that overdoing point than they do. But, you know, I, my, I have a guess. They have a guess. We'll have to see how that plays out. So the idea of modern monetary theory um, Although it's not, it's a hundred years old from Abra Lerner. If you go all the way back and study its history, is is the description of what they're saying is not, is I think right on. It's the prescriptions is where we you know maybe kind of diverge a little bit with it. Uh, you know, there was a metaphor Paul Singer of Elliott Management used the other day um, or a couple months ago on in an interview uh, where he talked about kind of. Um, you know, if you consider the economy like a factory, and if you push too too hard on one sector, it's going to pop in another sector, and uh, there, there's an escape valve essentially. So, if if you look at the future, it's kind of a distribution of uh, probabilities, right? Like one one outcome of the monetary and fiscal easing that we're doing right now could be inflation, right? That's one possible outcome. I personally subscribe that I think another way that there could be consequences or the economy could break is the inequality that's being generated right now. Oh, I think wealth inequality is, if not the number one issue, it's very close to being the number one issue that uh, you're absolutely right. I do think that that is the biggest problem. And not only U.S.-wide inequality, but global inequality as well, too. And where the contention really comes in is the most, the biggest most efficient inequality creating machine is the financial system right now. Whether it is central banks pushing up asset prices because the wealthy own it, or it is the payment rails that really and that force the 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 poor and the unbanked to pay confiscatory rates to do any kind of basic economic activity as in transferring money um, as well to the rules that we have uh, about uh, investing and everything else. Like, for instance, one of the most unfair inequality rules we have is we have to make sure that investors are smart and that they understand complicated in investments. So we have this thing called accredited investors. And we've decided that if you have a net worth of a million dollars, you must be smart. So you can now invest in a hedge fund or a limited partnership or some other kind of uh, complicated investment vehicle. But if you don't have a million dollars, you're stupid and you have to be protected from yourself. Look, I know 12-year-old kids that are probably better qualified to, to analyze in, uh, a limited partnership than a lot of people that have a million-dollar net worth and stuff. It's a, it's, but what it does do is it affords more opportunity for the wealthy and less opportunity for everybody else. So that's just one example of many. I do think you're right that the inequality, it's what drives, it's what drives debate. It's what drives the culture. It's what drives polit global politics as well, too, the rich countries versus the poor countries. And then you wind up with the most toxic of outcomes. And the toxic of outcomes is, I can't fix the inequality, so therefore I just want to punish the rich. Just to make, you know, to just to get some satisfaction that we're on the lower end of the scale. And that's, that's almost like a, a, you know, that they've given up, that they, they know that they can't fix this situation um, as well, too. So, um, you know, that's where, you know, we have all these people that, you know, go to rich galas wearing tax to rich uh, dresses and stuff like that. Uh, who, who, are you, who are you talking about? There, I don't know. I think I might have <laughs> saw something like that in the last week or so. And uh, but, uh, you know, AOC wants to, you know, but what she's really pushing is this idea of you're poor. You can't be you, you're poor. Can't do anything about that. But what we can do is maybe make you feel better by making you think we're going to punish them, not mm -hmm. improve your lot, punish them. 
that's that's an act of the you know that you, you know you've given up you've given up on the idea that things can get better and it's a very toxic attitude to have i want to actually take this opportunity to transition into crypto because a lot of what we've been talking about right now almost has been centered around like a bitcoin argument right there's a monetary easing and debasement and inequality and you know the bitcoin kind of side says all right we're going to bring this new era of sound money i haven't heard you talk about bitcoin that much i've heard you talk a lot about DeFi. So I've got a ton of questions for you on the DeFi side of things, but I've never really heard you talk about Bitcoin. What's your, what's your thought on that? Uh, well, so you're right about uh, that we're going to have a revolution and to redistribute the money. And I think this is what we're going to talk about right now. The revolution is going to mm-hmm. come in digital currencies, financial, uh, digital currencies, DeFi, and the like. Bitcoin, you know, is the granddaddy of all of the um, uh, of all of the cryptocurrencies. It is the ultimate store of value. It is the hard sound money alternative because it's capped at 21 million. I think that that is exactly right for what Bitcoin is. Now, I guess the I don't talk a lot about it because I'm not a Bitcoin maxi uh, that much because mm-hmm. I do think there's more to fixing the financial system than having a sound money alternative to gold, which is what they, the, the maxis are almost pushing. It, in my mind, is what they're saying. Look, we've got this perfect sound money store of value. Okay, you're right. It's a store of value. But there's so many other problems with the financial system. That's why, as a traditional financial guy, I like to focus on how do we fix the banking system, in the brokerage system, in the exchanges, in the insurance companies, in the payment rails. And that's where DeFi comes into it. There will always be a really important point for a store of value, whether it's the current, whether it is the fiat dollar right now in the current system, or maybe gold in the current system, or whether it's be it Bitcoin in the future system. But understand that at some point, what Bitcoin should do to be that ultimate store of value is it should approximate something that we know like a stable coin. It's not going to do that now because it's still in its growth phase. But when it yep. gets when it gets fully mature, then the opportunity will be it will just be a place to park your money that you know that whatever comes next, you will still have roughly the same value that you had. That's what gold has always done. That's where I think Bitcoin could wind up being. And that's why I focused more on the decentralized finance area and the whole idea of reorganizing the human race, whether it's through DAOs or whether it's through tokenomics and reorganizing yes. the whole financial system, because I think that's where the the interest is, for me at least. And I can see, you know, to me, it's like it's the early 90s and looking at the Internet. In the early 90s, when you looked at the Internet, you could have seen one of two things, right? You could have seen a slow dial-up modem with limited opp- opportunities, very frustrating to use because uh, everything stalls out and it doesn't do a whole lot. And then conclude, like Paul Krugman, that it's just a fancy fax machine. Or you could have looked at all of that. Um, You know, Mark Cuban has a great line when he was at Indiana University in the early 90s. And he dialed up and he was a big Cubs fan. And he was trying to download an audio file of the Cubs game. And it took 20 minutes to download. And it stalled and it crashed. And it was difficult. And then he sat back in his seat and he said, this is going to change the world. And you could have said, what are you talking about? This is crap. And you go, no, but think ahead to version six or seven of what this could be, which was broadcast.com, which he sold to Yahoo for a billion dollars and then wound up buying the Dallas Mavericks and everything else was history at that point. So I tend to look at DeFi and I tend to look at the crypto universe kind of like the way you, you, you know, Cuban was looking at the Internet in the early 90s. The current system now, not ready to, J.P. Morgan doesn't have to uh, worry today today that DeFi or Bitcoin is going to supplant the dollar or or their bank. But looking ahead to four, six, ten years down the road, eh, I think they got to have a real worry at, at their point as to how this system might evolve. Man, I so agree with you. And by the way, if you want to watch a funny video, someone who watched probably that same thing when uh, when baseball games started to get displayed over the internet differently, there is a... 1995 interview between David Letterman and Bill Gates, where Bill Gates is trying, he goes on Letterman, he tries to make the case for the internet. Uh, it's two minutes and you, everyone, please go and watch this. It's on YouTube, search David Letterman, Bill Gates, 1995. And it's a two minute clip. 
and Bill Gates is trying to describe the internet. And one cool thing that you can do on it is you can watch a baseball game, uh, you know, over the internet. And, you know, uh, David Letterman goes, you know, does radio ring a bell? You know, and the audience laughs and they're kind of like laughing at this guy with this big idea. And man, with the benefit of hindsight, oh, how wrong they were. Um, but, you know, I can imagine being Bill at the time because I feel like so many people that I've tried to describe crypto to, I get the same reaction. Mm-hmm. Um I would love to to get your perspective on, you know, how do you describe DeFi? Like, I again, going back to that Bankless interview, uh, it's clear that you have a pretty deep understanding of it. I personally have always felt that DeFi is most disruptive, actually, to banking and financial services. I feel like that narrative is finally coming into the fore. Talk to me about, like, let's say if you're from the legacy financial system, how should you be thinking about this? Why is it relevant? Why do you care? I mean, just talk to me about your whole framework for thinking about this space. Yeah, so... You know, first of all, let's start with the legacy financial system and let's start with the banking system. It is horribly inefficient. It is very, very slow and it is very expensive. And I know that my banking friends are now going to rip my heart out for saying all of that about the the, the legacy system. But it is. And the good news is, is, you know, uh, the good news is, is that the American banking system might be the best of a bad idea is is uh, is what what it would be to paraphrase Winston Churchill, right? The American banking system is the worst thing ever designed, except for all the other ones that came before it, uh, as well, too. Uh, and so I do think that what decentralized finance is going to do is the typical thing that in, that technology does. It recognizes that there is a an expensive uh, rent that is taken by a middleman, in this case, the banks, or maybe taxicab companies, or maybe newspapers and stuff, and remove them from the system to lower the cost and increase the efficiencies. So what DeFi is, is it's banking without a bank. And once you have banking without a bank, then you open up the possibilities for everybody when it comes to payments, when it comes to lending, when it comes to borrowing, because right now in the permission slow system, it's very expensive, it's very slow, and probably the most egregious part of that system is definitely the payment rails uh, as well, too. Uh, Cameron Harvey of Duke University uh, pushed out this um, thing that I've been tweeting out, and a lot of people think it was my idea, but it was his, where it's a picture of an 1873 telegram money transfer from Western Union, 1873, 150 years ago. $300, $9 fee, $309. It was 3%, and it took about two days. And back in 1873, if you wanted to send somebody 300 bucks, it would cost you 3%. They'd have to put $300 of coins and currency in a saddlebag and ride it to you on a horse. In 2021, if you go to Western Union right now and you want to send somebody $300, it's about 3%. And it's about two days. There's been no improvement at all in 150 years on this system. Now, whenever I say that, what I also find that's very interesting, this gets to your inequality debate. I'll get people that bombard me with requests, uh, replies on Twitter. Oh, but Venmo and PayPal and everything else. Yes, because you have a bank account. You have a minimum, probably $20,000 or much. So you're not paying a minimum fee. You get to download this, this app for free. And you get to use this, this little perk they give you like Venmo or like PayPal or, or any of these other things. Uh, as Zelle as another example as well, too. If you want to know what it's like... For a poor person, take a $100 bill, walk into a bank that you've never been in before in your life and send it to me and see how long it takes, see how hard it is and see how expensive it costs to do that. And that's and that's what I mean by comparing it to Western Union in 1873 and comparing it to 2021 uh, as well, too. It shouldn't be that hard to send some money from one person to another. It shouldn't be that expensive to send money from one person to another. And that's where I think DeFi's biggest uh, benefit could come. There's 1.7 billion unbanked people in the world, and they are in the, the they are possibly the ones that would benefit the most from it, which is not surprising when you look at crypto ownership. Chain analysis has done some of this work. Crypto ownership by country. There's only one country in the top 20 that's developed, developed, the United States. I think it's Vietnam leads the list and Afghanistan just hit the top 20. And no, that's not 
terrorist money, and that's uh, not drug money from Afghanistan. That's people in Kabul saying, okay, now that the Americans left and the Taliban's taken over, I still got to feed my family. And I still have to figure out a way to transfer money and to conduct economic activity to continue to make a living. And crypto and is basically filling the void for them. So, you know, I know we, we in the United States, we have the reserve currency. We have the, we have the, the, the top tr uh, traditional financial system. We might be the persons that lose the most if we were to, def if we were to you know, uh, evolve into a more of a decentralized system because we're at the top of the heap. Uh, right. But we've got one of two choices. I think you got to think of when you when we talk about DeFi, it is going to happen whether we want it to or not. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at the bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. Howdy, everyone. If you're a long-term investor in Ethereum, then listen up because I am talking directly to you here. If you've been listening to the show for the last two months, then you know that I am a big, big fan of ETH and the entire world of DeFi that's being built on top of it. It's honestly just super, super interesting, but it's also probably the single greatest wealth creation opportunity that I am ever going to see in my entire life. And the best thing about ETH is that you can hold it, but with this new upgrade to 2.0, you can also stake it and earn yield that way. The only problem is under the current set of rules, Unless you have 32 ETH, or at today's price is almost $100,000, then you can't stake it. Until now. Our good friends over at Matrixport just unrolled a solution which allows investors with as few as 5 ETH to start staking today. At the time of this recording, you can earn up to 9% APY, although that's going to vary based on the protocol. So, stop what you're doing, stop listening to me, go click the link at the bottom of this episode, if it's on YouTube or Spotify or Apple or whatever it is, Click that link, go over to the website, and tell them that I sent you. All right, give me a little credit. But definitely go click the link, start learning about how you can stake your ETH and earn yield or other yield generation opportunities. I want to actually bring up two more important value propositions that I see for DeFi as well and kind of get your opinion. So you kind of talked about this idea of, um, you know, it's almost kind of, we're talking about this from an efficiency and cost standpoint, right? Where we're disintermediating a bunch of middlemen that should bring down costs and generally produce better services. I think two other really important aspects to consider is one, the transparency in DeFi and two, just the speed of innovation and the rate of innovation that things that can happen. One analogy that's always resonated with me comes from this guy named uh, Vance Spencer over at Framework Ventures. And it's basically the idea that if you want to create uh, a financial service or an index or a product or something like that, the roadmap that you have to doing that is you basically got to work your way up, you know, spend 20 or 25 years, try to become a partner somewhere like Goldman Sachs. You can create this sort of derivative or index or financial product, and then you try to sell that to institutions. Now there's this, you know, if you're a 12 year old, uh, you know, based out of Indonesia, if you create something that people want to buy and use in DeFi, you can write the software and ship it. So the amount of friction that gets eased out of the literally the manufacturing and the distribution and creation of financial products is just gigantic, right? So there's kind of that innovation layer. And then on the transparent, I actually think that transparency might be the most important thing. There's this great example. Matt Levine writes about this kind of stuff. I'm sorry, BNY, I'm not picking on you. I swear, this is just the one example that I always have on the top of my head. But, uh, you know, a little while ago, 
the on the FX side of uh, BNY's business, you know, they were kind of getting pushback against customers. Hey, we don't want to pay fees. We don't want to make pay fees for making these transactions. And what they said was, okay, we're not going to charge you fees up front or flat fees. But what they did was they routed it to their own trading desk. And then based on when they made the trade, you know, uh, during the day, they did it at a point which was maximizing the spread, right? So you didn't pay any flat fees up front, but you know, behind there, there was a bunch of fees and then they had to pay all these fines and yada, yada. But the point is all that gets solved if you have perfect transparency into what's going on. And honestly, for all the problems in DeFi, the one thing that is not a problem is transparency. What do you think about those two value propositions? Just speed of innovation, transparency. How important is that to this whole movement? Oh, it's critical to it. And let me throw in a third one because I was thinking about it when you were saying it. Um, what doesn't get mentioned enough about the anti-money laundering rules, the current rules, because, you know, you hear, you know, this kind of circa 2014 boomer argument that it's all a bunch of drug dealers and terrorists that used, uh, you know, cryptos. Yeah. Let's let's look at all of the studies, of the anti-money laundering rules, and let's understand that these are among the most expensive and least effective rules ever written. So that, you know, you, you, we need to have AML to prevent terrorists. Well, we're not preventing shit from happening right now in the current financial system. They are moving along. And not only that, in the current financial system, when we have widespread fraud in the financial system, we don't really do a whole lot of it. Now I'm going to get myself in trouble again. And let's go pick on Wells Fargo. Look, Wells Fargo was basically running like a criminal enterprise about five years ago with that whole account opening scandal. They had all of their account managers. If you opened up an account, you got paid. So what they were doing by the thousands of employees at Wells Fargo, opening millions of accounts on, a, on customers' behalf. They'd open a credit card account for you or a bank account for you. And then the salesman or the account manager got paid because you opened a new account, although you didn't know you opened a new account. Uh, as well, too. And what I thought was the most damning thing for the financial system was when that scandal hit, what was the in, what was the reaction of depositors to Wells Fargo and investors? Not a whole lot. It was almost like, oh, well, Wells Fargo is just running a flat out criminal enterprise. Well, why isn't there a bank run to get your money away from them? Why aren't investors running away from this organization? To be fair, the stock did fall a little bit, but then it recovered right. uh, yeah. as well, too. Because at the end of the day, everybody views every bank as the same as every other bank. And if, uh, well, but JP Morgan wasn't doing that, well, you know what, they're all the same. And, that's kind of, and that, I thought, was the most damning thing for the financial yes. system. You know, that Wells Fargo should have paid a tremendous penalty for that kind of malfeasance. And the fact that they didn't is not a benefit. It shows the weakness. Same thing with HSBC. Get myself in trouble again. HSBC has been caught many times financing terrorism. You know, uh, and they've paid fines and they've cleaned up their act and they still can't get their act cleaned up as well too. So much for anti-money laundering rules, you know, as well too. And where's HSBC? Still a major global bank. We still haven't punished them for, for, for their, their malfeasance. So let me start with that. Understand that the current system as it is is stopping nothing. It's stopping nothing. The terrorists it's, it's and drug worse. dealers, yes, the terrorists and drug dealers are walking in the front door of major global banks and conducting whatever illegal business they want. And your rules are not stopping any of it. All your rules are doing is piling on costs to everybody that uses those organizations. So let's start there. And then let's say, okay, now you've got the pseudo anonymous system in crypto. Uh, that you can track it through, uh, you know, you can track it uh, through like EtherScan and, the, and uh, other other ways to uh, track what's going on on chain uh, as well, too. And so it's not perfectly um, anonymous. It's pseudo anonymous. It is actually a step up. But more importantly, it also brings up a very, you know, it brings up a very touchy kind of question. And that is, can money be private property? Because, you know, as I like to joke with some of my friends when I talk about DeFi, it's like, you do realize that everybody who's lit, my net worth, your net worth, and everybody who's listening to this, all of our net worths are zero. We have no money. What we have is all the net worth is held by financial institutions. And then the financial institution is a little ledger that says, okay, part of the money we owe, we have in this institution, we agree that it's Jim's money. But it's really our money. But we'll just put, you know, write his name down on a little ledger that part of it is his money. 
What crypto says is, no, it is my private property in my wallet and I have my own private key. Is that acceptable for is that acceptable for money? You know, a lot of people in the financial system say no. That no, that all of your money, all of my money should remain with them and that they will have some secret ledger that will allow me to believe that my net worth is above zero as well. But and that's why we worry about these financial institutions when they go bust. I lose all my money. You lose all your money because it was never mine in the first place uh, as well. And so this is what we this is kind of the existential question we have to ask. Can we have private private property be money as well, too? And that's what crypto is trying to accomplish. Yeah, I think, you know, to even agree with you and even take it one step further, I actually think when regulators levy these fines, it's it's enabling the whole system. It's creating the system because, it's, you know, there's that Charlie Munger quote, you show me the incentives, I'll show you the results, right? There was the slap, you know, Scott Galloway talks about this, you know, what was that $5 billion? So Facebook for the whole Cambridge Analytica, right? I'm not trying to make this a political discussion, but there was, there was a threat to American democracy, right? Depending on how you frame that. And what was the fine? It was $5 billion. That's like a month of cash flow for them. And it's the same thing, right? They're Goldman illegally, raised all that money for in the 1MDB scandal. JP Morgan, they were criminally fixing the precious metals market. When they get fines that aren't debilitating for doing that, what are you doing? You're saying it's okay. It's just a cost of doing business. You enable the whole thing. Can I give you another example too? Please. So yeah. in 2008, we have, we, have, we have LIBOR. LIBOR is an unsecured bank loan among banks. So Citibank yeah. will offer unsecured money. JP Morgan offers unsecured money. Barclays offers unsecured money. And the, the British Bankers Association tracks LIBOR uh, and reports on what every bank is reporting for LIBOR and then gives you an average. The way they track it is they call the bank and they ask them, what rate are you getting on your LIBOR? And what we found in 2008 was a number of banks that were in trouble just flat out lied, flat out lied. Why? Because if my LIBOR, if my cost of unsecured financing is significantly above everybody else's, that means my institution's in trouble, and that is the effective 21st century bank run. So lie through your teeth and tell them that everything's fine, and people have actually gone to jail over this. Jamie Dimon spoke in 2008, and he said, the incentives are all backwards here, because if the bank tells the truth about their funding costs, they have a bank run and they're out of business. If the bank lies through its teeth and tells you everything's okay when it's not, you guys yell at them for two years and in three years they pay a little fine and they continue to exist. And so, yes, the, the incentives have always been. And so that's why I said with the financial system, the incentives have always been cheat, say you're sorry, let them yell at you, pay a little fine, and you're much better off for cheating than you were for not. And this is why bankers are held in such ill repute you know, whether it's surveys and nobody trusts them. And it's also been a big motivation for, you know, looking at the digital asset world as well, too. I'm not trying to point any fingers and say these are bad people or whatever. I, I'm of the opinion that generally uh, you create structures that are not permanent, right? You create institutions. They serve the world for a period of time. The world's a dynamic place. It changes. Eventually, you need to recreate those institutions. And and people respond to incentives. And, and that's kind of the way that I view banking. I just think it's an institution that ultimately needs to change. And, you know, you know I got to tell it just real quick, you know, that the banking system right now, the fractional banking system that we're using uh, that you said has to change. It was designed for the Industrial Revolution in the late 19th century is what it was designed for. And now here we are in the right. information revolution of the 21st century. It is a round it is a square peg in a round world is really what it is. Why do you think we need like eight different financial, uh, eight different regulatory institutions to look at the banks? J.P. Morgan, to use another example, every day at J.P. Morgan, there are 700 regulators who have a nine to five, well, pre-pandemic, a nine to five, five day a week job sitting in J.P. Morgan's offices watching their activity. 700 people, they have to give office space yeah. for 700 full-time regulators. And you know what? They won't catch the next problem that they have as well, too. <laughs> it, that should tell you right there, if you need 700 full-time people to watch what I'm doing, 
there's something wrong with what I'm doing. It's not that you're. It's not that you need 800 to watch what I'm doing. It's it's fundamentally the system is just. It was designed for two centuries ago, and right now we are in a completely different type of world. Yeah. Now, I want to talk to you about what the transition kind of looks like. And I just want to share. So we hosted our Digital Asset Summit, uh, which is a conference that kind of bridges the gap. We're trying to get people from the old world and legacy finance and kind of this new world of DeFi and crypto. And we've been hosting it for four years. And just on a totally personal note, you know, I remember going around conferences when I was first getting into this space. Uh, This was during 2017, that crazy kind of bubble that happened back then. And I would talk to people who'd been in crypto for a while, and I talked to people who'd been in finance. And back then, I really connected more with the people that had an open mind, but they had more of a financial hedge. And they were like, look, there's some interesting things in this system, but it's going to ultimately have to conform to legacy finance and all this new crazy stuff. It's not going to, it'll end up looking something like today. And I I remember thinking, that sounds good. That sounds about right. Um, And I was listening to all these people that had been in crypto for a long time. And I remember kind of thinking, you guys kind of sound like lunatics. Now, four years later, we're in a really different position because I think in the back of my head, I was always thinking those finance people, if they just watched real growth happen and because in 2017, it was obviously a bubble, but now you have DeFi, you have stable coins, you have real working products with users. And I guess I kind of always thought in the back of my head, if this ever really came back, they would see and they would change their minds. Well, they haven't. They freaking haven't. There was at this conference the other day, there were two, I don't want to call this bank out, but there's a senior person at a bulge bank. Bulge Bracket Bank, everyone would know the name. And, uh, you know, they were telling me, it's like, yeah, it's me and one other person who, uh, you know, attended the conference and we, you know, and I remember my takeaway was there's only two people at this bank that know what's going on and have buy-in. And I now I'm thinking to myself, I think the moats are too big. These companies are raising hundreds of millions of dollars. They've motivated teams that are only doing this. The area is growing and finance still hasn't woken up. I just can't believe they haven't woken up. And um, Coinbase was a really instructive thing when that went public. Someone made a comment on Twitter. At the current valuation, Coinbase could acquire CBOE for only 10% equity dilution. That was a wake-up call for me to personally look at that and be like, I think they've missed the window. I think they had a window to buy into the innovation. And I think the window is either closing or it's fully closed because a lot of the crypto companies that might have sold and been happy to sell to JP Morgan for $50 million dollars Back in 2018, 2019, they're not doing that anymore. They're valued at a billion dollars and they want to be the new JP Morgan. So that might have sounded a little bit extreme. I got to, I'm fresh off this perspective from yesterday and I've been thinking about this. What's, I don't know, what's your take here? Am I being too extreme? You know, first thing, I I was just joking when you said that about Coinbase buying CBOE for 10% dilution. Well, now, Oh, uh, all the CBOE is 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 one improvement proposal away from the Uniswap Foundation from taking them over <laughs> as well too. Uh, maybe they, they should you know it, you know it, it's gotten to, it's gotten to that point uh, yeah. as well. But I, I do think when you look at um, the space, the problem is I, I've heard this a lot. Look, I've spoken to a lot of central banker types, a lot of central banker conferences about stable coins and CBDCs as well too, and. Just by the way, as an aside, I'll, I'll say it right now. I don't think there'll ever be a, a central bank digital currency out of the United States. Or if there is one, it will never take off because they're going to have to put so many rules on it to prevent it from cannibalizing the existing com- commercial banking system. Commercial. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you know, look, if you're going to give me a CBDC, if you're going to give me FedCoin and a wallet to keep my money at the Fed, I, I don't know where JP Morgan fits in that world. Uh, so you're going to put a lot of rules on it. So JP Morgan does fit in that world. Well, then that Fed coin's not going to be useful for anything uh, as well, too. If you if you give me a, a Fed coin that I can actually put in my Coinbase account and use as a stable coin, the crypto space doubles next trade. Uh, because now I've got like a real stable coin that I can play with, you know, uh, on Uniswap as well, too, uh, as opposed to, you know, Tether or Circle or any of those other ones uh, as well. But... I do think, though, that they are having a very difficult time understanding this new space. Look, they're they're basically they're barely getting their head around it right now. And when it comes to and then you throw in the idea of an NFT and they really don't understand that when you throw in the words Dow, they think you're talking about a version of communism that they, they don't understand how a Dow is supposed to uh, work. Tokenomics doesn't make any sense to them as well, too. One of the problems 
what I always tell my traditional financial people is, I say, you know, they say, well, what should I do in this space? And I said, I want you, none of them do it, or I don't think many of them do, but I say, please take 500 or $1,000 and open, you know, a Gemini, Kraken, Coinbase, Binance US, you take your pick, account, and buy some crypto, move it to a, uh, move it to a wallet, and then stake it. And I, I don't care what you do. It's not even an investment. It is what you're doing is education. Because the problem is you guys think that, well, this is not ready for prime time. A couple of years when it's ready for prime time, we'll call somebody like me in and I'll give you a three hour, you know, tutorial. And then you'll be all up to speed on DeFi. And I said, no, mm -hmm. this is going to take you a long time to get your head around. This is why they don't get it, because it, there's an investment of time and there's an investment of effort to try and understand it. I said, if you think I could teach this to you in three hours, then the next freshman at a university that takes a three-hour class in what's called three-hour seminar is what is finance. Okay, they could send their resume now to Goldman Sachs. They don't need to spend the next four years at school getting a degree because it's that simple. Yeah. You know, No, it's not that simple. You need a four-year degree to work there, maybe even an MBA to work there. Well, you're going to have to put that much effort into understanding this new system as well, too. They don't want to. It's too hard. When you get older like I am as well, too. You get kind of people get set set in their ways and they don't want to send, spend that time. So therefore, they can't get their head around this. And then their next step is, since I don't want to understand it, I can't get my head around it, call up Janet Yellen and tell her to make it go away. And that seems yeah. to be what, where, where we're at right now. But what they don't realize is she can't make it go away. She can make it miserable for a little while, but she can't make it go away for good. So I don't know. You probably follow uh, Lacey Hunt. Uh, I'm certainly uh, I listen to everything that guy puts out. I love Lacey. Uh, yes. Me too. Man, do I love Lacey Hunt. Um, Best and, you know, laugh in Wall Street. That... <laughs> <laughs> uh, the guy's been right for a long period of time. So he's got kind of these two two. There are two takeaways that I stick with him. Right, which is that we won't see real inflation until liabilities of central banks become legal tender in the same way that liabilities of commercial banks were legal tender. Right. So for me, that's always been. That sounds a lot like CBDCs, right? Liabilities of central banks become legal tender. I agree with you that um, I agree with you that I don't think we're going to see one in the U.S. because it would disintermediate the commercial banking system. The other thing that Lacey says, and honestly, what I think the federal ba the central banks have been trying to do with their easy monetary stimulus, they want to create growth. And Lacey has always said maybe there's some technological innovation which is actually going to help us grow our way out of the problem. For me, I got to tell you, I've been looking at DeFi and the metaverse and the growth that I've personally experienced in the crypto ecosystem is nuts. And for me, I know this sounds crazy. I hear myself, right? I want to check my own enthusiasm. But for me, this space is that technological innovation that Lacey's been talking about. What do you think about that idea? Do you agree, disagree? 100% agree. It, it absolutely is. Look, there's a lot of things that are going on. Lacey's right about, you know, central bank uh, liabilities becoming legal tender and then we'll have inflation. Uh, as well, too. But I, I, I'll, I'll quibble a little bit in saying he's talking about like big inflation, like seven, eight, 10, 12 percent. When right. I talk about inflation, I think I'm talking about two and a, three and a half, three, three and a half, maybe three and three quarters. And the reason I think that's a big deal is because of a 120 bond yield. Look, if we had a four percent 10 year note and I said, look, I think the inflation rate could go to three and a half. So what? But when you have a 120 bond yield, 1.2% bond yield, and you think inflation rate's going to stick around three, that is a, a, a big deal. But as far as the innovation goes, absolutely right. A couple of things about this, and you could juxtapose it. There's a debate going on right now about the future of work and how people don't want to go back to the office. And I think really what that is at the heart of that is what did people do the last year? They sat at home and they came up to speed on living their life online. And they don't want to go back to wasting their time in an office. And this is the debate we're having. And by the way, who is pushing the hardest to get everybody back to the office five days a week? It's financial services businesses. And within financial services, who is pushing even harder than anybody else? Goldman Sachs uh, as well, too. Because why does Goldman Sachs want everybody back at the office five days a week? Because they win. 
when everybody gets back to the office five days a week. If everybody's working remotely and we're transitioning to this new metaverse type of world uh, with online presences and online businesses and online um, um, culture and stuff like that, the traditional financial system is not there. It's not ready for it. So my, my closing question for you is, Narrative plays a big role in what we're doing here. And if you go back to the early days of the internet and look at some of the narratives that were floating around there, right? Uh, same way people are talking about democratizing value right now. Uh, people talk about democratizing information. It's going to make information available to everyone, and that's going to level the playing field. In some senses, that's true. Information has never been more available to anyone who wants to find it. In another probably more accurate sense it hasn't delivered on that narrative because some of the largest, most centralized, unfair, uncompetitive companies in the world are internet-based companies, right? So it didn't really do that other thing that was level the playing field. If you look at crypto today, some of the driving narratives behind this movement, there's a lot of them. Uh, there's decentralization, there's transparency and innovation that we've been talking about, there's banking the unbanked, there's all of these different things. In your opinion, let's say it's 10 years from now, which of those narratives are going to prove to be the important ones? And which do you think that this paradigm shift is not going to deliver on? Um, I do think what's potentially going to be them. I'm going to I'm going to go all the way out there and I'm going to say that potentially the most important one is going to be DAOs, because I do think that that way to reorganize human behavior on a DAO. Look, if we're going to go to the idea that we're going to work online, you know, you and me, that's, you know, what, what's my job? What's your job? We sit in front of a computer. We manipulate things on a screen. That's exactly what we're doing right now uh, as well, too. If that's indeed the case, then maybe we can go the next step, too, is what is a job? And is a job going to be that somebody is going to pay you nine to five to do something? Or is my job going to be like with a DAO that I have a certain expertise and I do it for as many different organizations as I can on my terms? And I get paid by the Dow for delivering on whatever it is that I want to deliver. I think that that's going to be definitely the place we're going to go because I think this whole work, remote work, work from home, whatever you want to call it, movement is lending itself towards as well to this ultimate flexibility that, you know, all of a sudden now, if there's going to be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Dow's and I've got a certain skill set in something I can market myself to everybody and say, I can do this for you and I can do the same thing for 20 other companies or two or DAOs or two other DAOs uh, as well, too. Beyond that, yeah. I think in the, in, in, in the next point, I do think what you're going to see before we get there is you are going to see a continued explosion of decentralized finance and crypto adoption outside of the United States. And I think which in the next two to three years, we're going to start to come to the conclusion that any rules that the SEC or the Treasury Department put on this stuff is just hampering the United States because you're not getting Vietnam to stop it. You're not getting Afghanistan to stop it. You're not getting Nigeria to stop it. You're not getting the Philippines to stop it, which are big four mm. crypto adopted countries. You're just getting Americans to stop it. And that's not helping us in the long run. I am so glad you said DAOs there. I could not be in more agreement with you. If you look at things like Axie Infinity, Yield Guild Games, let me just paint like a picture for you, right? There, there are these gaming economies that already right now have in-game economies, $20, $30 billion. Let's say 10 years from now, across multiple different games, you have trillion-dollar economies embedded in there. What are the implications? Right now, all these nations use uh, currency and they have local labor markets. These are tools that they can use to compete. Well, guess what? Axie Infinity, Yield Gold, they, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you dial in from the Philippines. doesn't matter if you dial in from the U.S., from South America, whatever. What does that do? What does that do to government's ability to manipulate uh, currency and control labor markets? That's insane. Uh, I, it's hard to even overstate how impactful yeah. that would be. Yeah, so let me, let me throw out two real quick things on this. First of all, I believe Axie Infinity, the, the largest amount of people using it are in the Philippines uh, as they well. They are. Too. Yes. So let me let me speak. I'm I'm going to be 59 in a couple of weeks. So let me speak to my to my cohort, and let me tell you, there are two and a half billion gamers on the planet right now. Two and a half billion. They spend an average of one hour a day on gaming. If you add up all of the revenue 
from movies, television, sporting events, all of them, it pales in comparison to the revenues that games make right now. People spend $40 billion a year on their skins, their, their avatars, their online presence. We don't even see that much money being spent on all the tickets and all the sporting events in North America, not even close as well too. So what I'm trying to say is, you want to know where the you want to know where the culture is. You want to know where entertainment is. You want to know what is setting the tone. It is gaming, and it is not the movies. It is not television. It is not sporting events that is driving culture. It is gaming, and I think a lot of people in my cohort they laugh when I talk about gaming. They still think it's Donkey Kong from the late '90s or, or late '80s and stuff. They don't understand what gaming is. There's something going on there. Maybe instead of yelling at them for spending all that time on the games. Why don't you play it and see what the appeal is? And then the light bulb might go off in your head and go, man, a lot of things are going to change. And it all starts with the gaming community as well, too. And I think that's the most misunderstood part of all of this among the older generation is they still cannot grasp the true importance that gaming is. And from that, the tokenomics and the crypto universe that is flowing out of it like Axie Infinity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jim, clearly, uh, I could talk. I wish we could go for another hour, but uh, I want to be sensitive to your calendar. Thank you so much for doing this. If folks want to find out more about you and what you do at Bianco Research, what's the best way to do that? Uh, a couple of ways. At Bianco Research is my Twitter handle. You can look me up, Jim Bianco, on LinkedIn, or our website is uh, BiancoResearch.com. We provide traditional investment research for institutional investors, and I've been trying to use my falling down the, the DeFi crypto rabbit hole is a conduit for those for those traditional types to try and, you know, be the Pied Piper to say, don't dismiss this. It's not just magic beans. There's something more going on there. Plus, the bulk of our work is more traditional financial stuff. Yeah, thanks. Well, you're doing a great job bridging that gap. Uh, thank you so much. This has been just a great conversation for me. Hope it was valuable to you, too. And we'll have to do it again soon. I enjoyed it. Thank you. 